this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. I'm in an empty big building on Walnut Street here in Bloomington. It's the world headquarters of the Herald Times, and it's pretty much empty now. Uh, happily, I'm accompanied by the veteran reporter, Laura Lane. Laura, hi. Welcome to Big Talk. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Now, Laura has been at this since 1984 here in Herald Timesville? It was late in 1984. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think it works out to 37 years about. Wow. Quarter here, yes. The reason I tried to paint this little picture of where we are is because newspapers, by golly, are they still going to be here by 2030? I tell my journalism students at, the, at IU that they will be. Aha. Uh -huh. And I'm confident what form they will take in that time in the future, I can't be certain. But I know that there always is going to have to be people gathering and reporting the news. It's not just going to show up from, from nowhere. When you were uh, going into college, you were thinking of maybe getting into the uh, public relations business. You were dissuaded. I was dissuaded, thankfully. And then that's nothing against anyone in the public relations field, but it certainly would not have been for me. I was um, I, a freshman at Butler University. There was a brand new major called public and corporate communications, and they were trying to get students to enroll in the program. Fortunately for me, my advisor was a man named Art Levin, and he was a veteran journalist from Chicago who was the head of the journalism department at the, at the university at the time. He did not try to talk me out of the public and corporate communications major. He just told me that I was not going to major in that. Well, how did he know? Well, he thought I had savvy. He knew I could write. And he knew that I had a love for newspapers and journalism. And he wanted me to stick with that. He also might have foreseen that without people like me, journalism might not survive. You're an Indianapolis gal. Yes. Were you reading the paper every day when you were a kid? When I was growing up, we didn't really have books in the house. We had the Reader's Digest condensed editions. So I read the newspaper every day. It's the one thing, the printed material that was always in the house. I didn't know what journalism was, really, but I read everything. I read the obituaries. I loved even just reading about people's lives. They didn't make me sad. It made me inquisitive uh, more and more. It's like a history lesson. It is, and I've written a lot of obituaries in my career. I actually wrote the obituary for Scott Schurz, the publisher of the Herald Times for many years, and we are now sitting in his office. I'm sitting in his chair. The empty office, uh, except for a, a, a couch, a big desk, and a credenza, and a lamp or two. But otherwise, it's, a, it's an echo chamber in here. It is. It took a while before I could come in here without having tears in my eyes. I grew up here. I, I've done so much journalism here. I have made so many wonderful friends and met people who I will be indebted to forever. And it's hard to see... Not only the fading of journalism, but the fading of this particular newspaper and this building and this, this historic bastion of, of reporting in, in Bloomington. Now, I've seen plenty of movies about the newspaper business set in the 30s and 40s and all that, and I know the reporters would come in to the editor and publisher and shake their finger at him and said, you dirty so-and-so. Was that the kind of thing that went on in this office with you and the publisher and editor? 
actually those conversations happened in, in the editor's office. If, uh-huh. came up, if they were came up this far to the publisher's office, we were in big trouble. So we would usually settle those um, debates in the newsroom when my career was most often with Bob Salzberg. I would win some and he would win some. <laughs> Sometimes it was a draw and we would both storm away. Now, about 20 years ago, you had maybe a little bit of a disagreement with an editor. The editor wanted you to start doing a car column, and you weren't too hot on that, were you? It was the general manager at the time, Mike Heffron. We were remaking the Sunday newspaper, and we wanted it to be great. So he, for some reason, and I'm not real sure even today why, wanted us to have a local car column. And we would have meetings about planning the newspaper and this topic would come up and everyone would look away and change the topic. Nobody wanted to write a car column. I sure as hell didn't want to write a car column. Did you know anything about cars? I did not know very much. I My dad was a used car salesman, oh. so I'd driven lots of uh, sketchy cars in my time since I was 15 years old. So I, <laughs> I felt like maybe I was the one in the room with the most experience about cars. And then finally I got to the point, and during one of those meetings I said, fine, I'll write the damn thing. And Bob Salzberg looked at me with great relief and said, and he was so happy that it was over. And he said, we'll just call it My Favorite Ride as Uh a joke. And I said, yeah, right. We'll just call it that. And then we did. And I thought it would fade away after probably a year, maybe two, and I would be free of it. And instead, it's 20 plus years. I've written this column every week, which is hundreds and maybe thousands. I don't know how many. And I thought I would run out of cars. I will never run out of cars. And I will never run out of the stories that accompany the history of these vehicles that I write about. I wrote this morning about a 1951 Hudson Commodore. It's all original. Look how excited I'm getting about yeah. this, right? Well, I'm trying to make my readers love it, too. But there's a bigger story behind it. You know, it's the story about the guy that owns the car. And it's a pretty short column. But it has some great pictures that I took, and I had, I just really enjoyed writing it and meeting the people that I encounter writing this column as well, all of them. Do you get to drive any of these cars? I sometimes do. I was writing about a um, Chevrolet Corvette. Ooh. 73, possibly. Ooh, a beauty. It was lovely. And it was, I was in Martinsville, and the guy who owned it um, was telling me the story. His brother had bought the car before he went to Vietnam. It might have been a late 60s, actually. It had to have been. And was killed in Vietnam, and so the brother had inherited the car. And it was I almost couldn't even touch the car because it was such a, a precious thing for their family. And he said, you want to take a ride? And I said, sure. And he threw the keys at me, and I caught them, and he says, let's go. And it was not an automatic, and he didn't even ask me if I knew how to drive a stick, which I, of course, do know how to drive a stick. And, but I was so nervous. So I got in, and I started up, and it just, you know, how a bet will go. And I backed it up, and I put it in first gear and drove so slow, so slowly down the street in Martinsville. He says, well, let's just take it out on the highway. And I just wanted to jump out of the driver's seat. <laughs> I thought, nope, I'm going to do this. I can do this. And I continued driving, and so we pull on to what had been 37 at the time, and I'm going about 45, and he looks at me and he says, you know, you can shift out of second gear now. <laughs> like, oh my God, I forgot to shift. That was scary for me, but then I remember that he trusted me to do that. And the man, 
That's out of his mind. But yeah. they do trust me. They know I love their cars. I love their stories. They tell me everything. I come out with five columns instead of one sometimes. You're talking about cars now, but you also do news. And uh, by the way, I, and I want to get back to the trust issue, but the uh, Herald Times reporter bio on you says, and I quote, she covers crime, courts, cars, and more. Following issues and the struggles and triumphs of people in rural southern Indiana. You have to engender trust within all the people you talk with. How do you do it? You know, I don't know. I, I, there's no formula. I didn't take a class in how to interview people or how to get people to trust you, especially in an industry where no one trusts the people that are writing the news. I mean, let's face it. Right. Uh, journalists and lawyers. And yes. Salesmen. We're all in the same barrel. I, I've wondered over time why it is that people trust me. They will talk to me. It's not just because I'm a woman. I think I think that helps sometimes. I was at a, a, scene, a site yesterday where they were um, evacuating a homeless camp in Bloomington. And there was a woman on the sidewalk. She was being evacuated. She's packing her stuff up and she was angry. And I don't know that she would have talked to a man who would have stopped and asked her. She saw me as a more, I think, of a sympathetic figure. I am a nice person. I am. I, I mean, at heart. I care about the people I write about. I have this perspective. I think my perspective may be a little different sometimes because I always try to stand in the shoes of whoever I'm talking to or whoever I'm writing about. So yesterday it was that woman... I don't want to say her name. I don't want to That's put cool. it out there. But she's in my story. Yeah. She gave me her name and told me she was an addict and told me why she wants to live in the woods and why she doesn't want you know people throwing her out of this home she's created. And then she gave me her name and trusted me to tell her story. And then I, I, I really feel for her. And the man she was with, you know, he's got a long criminal record. He's probably not the nicest guy in the world. But I, I felt compassion for him as well because he's huh. getting thrown out of where he lives. So then I, I was at a court hearing where um, a man was sentenced to 65 years for killing his 12-year-old son. Right. He starved him to death. He beat him to death. He put staples into the child's feet with a staple gun. So I tried to stand in the shoes of this man, and I did. And then I wrote a story that probably um, echoed no compassion for him because huh. I really had none. And as a reporter, I'm there to report what happens. He got 65 years. I, re I report what the judge says. I report what the witnesses say. I reflect what happens in the courtroom. But I have a lot of power in the way that I present a story. And I have a lot of practice in 37 years of being a writer and of interviewing and of stepping back and seeing how the story can be more compelling or more interesting, or more special, or not. Is there such a thing as objectivity? I think we stab at it as best we can. Again, I teach journalism. I've taught journalism ethics at the media school. So I, I am well-versed in what we say. And I know that I teach objectivity as a very important tenet of journalism, and it is. But my life is always going to color what I see and hear as I report. And for me, I hope that what colors my reporting and writing is compassion and knowledge and 
trying to get both sides so that getting both sides doesn't always equate to objectivity probably in some people's minds but we always try or strive to get both sides into a story in the case of Mr. Paso, who was sentenced for killing his son, I don't know what the other side is there. I don't know that I can balance that story out objectively. I can just report what happened to his son, what happened to court, and that the guy's going to prison for what will be 49 years in, in Indiana instead of 65. And you don't need to get too emotive about it because the facts of the case alone would inspire the emotion in the reader. That's exactly what it was. I don't have to use flowery language or anything. If, if you read the story about um, Louis Paso being sentenced, I quote the judge. I say what she did. I quote an ER doctor describing the child as looking like a Holocaust victim. I Jeez. can put these images into people's minds. I can say that the judge said the man used a staple gun on his child's feet. Mm. I can have her shoulder, holding the picture up of the, her, of the man's son saying... He looked just like you, sir. Wow. So the impact comes from what, what I am documenting. I'm a documenter, documenter of history and fact and the tone of what's going on and everything. And again, I, I am well aware of the power I have. I can leave things out. I can put things in. I can slant all day long, but I try not to. The objectivity is just trying to always come back to, is this fair? Have I tried to minimize harm if at all necessary? Fair. And boy, try to define fair. And I've spent decades balancing fair every day. Now, I've heard that there are reporters who won't even vote in order to maintain an atmosphere of objectivity. That's true. We've had that debate in the newsroom even recently. There's a reporter in our newsroom that does not vote for that very reason. He doesn't want people to go and look up and, and see his bias one way or another. I feel so strongly about the um, having the right to vote and all yeah. of the people that have fought for that in the history of this country. I also have seen one or two votes turn an election. Yeah. I really know the value and the power of one vote and of getting your opinion out there. The way I have handled this through the years is we're, we're called the liberal media. I, I come from devout, staunch, longtime Republicans. There are family members that probably don't even want me to come in the living room because they think I've been so tainted by liberal Bloomington and now my political beliefs might be different from theirs. So I, what I do is I look at candidates. I have, I have occasionally voted in a Republican primary because I feel strongly that there's a Sometimes it's because there's a good Republican running and I want to vote for them. Yeah. Jim Fielder, if you ever knew the man. Mm, I've heard of him, yes. I would vote Republican in any race to vote for Jim Fielder. He's since died, and I, I miss him. He called me Scoop. <laughs> he said, hey, Scoop, and then he'd give me some news, and sometimes it was a Scoop. He was the <laughs> county clerk for a long time. So if you look at my voting record, it's going to be all over the place. You have <clears throat> to vote. You must vote. You read your papers, as you say, in your home in Indianapolis. You started writing. What kind of writing? You were a kid. I could kick out a, a, an essay like nobody's business. Fourth grade, my essays were up, pinned on the board. I had beautiful handwriting. We actually handwrote things. Oh, sure. This was the 70s. The right? Palmer so, method. Right. So, and I had beautiful handwriting, and I had a good imagination, and I spelled everything correctly. And I just was, that was my thing. I could write. Now, wait a minute. 
Writing is not pleasurable to anybody, supposedly. In fact, in my day, teachers punished you by saying, write a thousand words. You didn't see it that way. No, I've always found joy in writing, in reading and writing. I would read so much as a child. I would get in trouble for having my face in a book all the time. <laughs> the Reader's Digest condensed books. <laughs> no, I actually read everything. I went to a small elementary school and I read everything in the, in the, in the library. I read The Hardy Boys. I read Nancy Drew. I read everything. And then I realized that I could do that. I can tell stories. I yeah. can write. I, can... I have an imagination. I love it. And that's when I got to college. I was like, okay, what can I do where I can write and make money at the same time and have a career? And I thought, well, I'll just write novels. And then I realized, that, and I still, I've yet to get there. I am going to write novels, but I had to make a living and raise children and live and pay a mortgage and do all of these things to use writing as a vocation and a, and a career. I have been blessed. I, would, I can't imagine ever doing anything else, which is why I'm still doing it. I mean, a lot of people have, who've been doing this 37 years are not doing it anymore. Oh, yeah. Most. I still love it every day. You like coming into work, even in this cavern of a, of a hulk, of, of, of a tomb. <laughs> it's hard for me to come into this building, and my news editor recognizes that, because I worked at the Herald Times when there were dozens and a hundred people working in this building. We had it all, and now to see it diminish to this is hard for me. So I am in the office um, one day a week for a, a live news meeting with, my, with the staff, and you won't see me in here. And then I'm here to interview with you. Yeah. But I don't come in the building very much. It's it, it makes me sad. But I do recognize that everything we do here is going to continue on when the building is gone. It's just working my way through that is, is hard. Now, where do you write when you're writing a story? I write, and you've seen me. Well, I write in uh, at Soma sometimes. Yeah. In the back room. I mostly write at home. I live in the country on five acres in the woods, and I have a beautiful setup in my dining room and big giant windows that look outside. So I never, I always thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to just work at home and write at home? Yeah. And then the pandemic came, and that was a couple of hard years of reporting for me. I mean, no I, was, I was, I might have been working at home, but I was covering that on the front lines. And I found the joy of writing and working from home. And I'm lucky enough to have a boss that recognizes I do that very well. And also combined with my, the difficulty again of coming in here, it, it just works for me. So I'm mostly writing at home. When you started in this business, there weren't cell phones and there weren't laptops. You were writing on a big CRT terminal at your desk. You had to be here to get the phone calls and all the rest. I lived in the newsroom, lived and breathed the newsroom day and night. We, we, cause it's a 24 hour operation, you know, news. And when you're not printing the paper, you're delivering it. And when you're not delivering it, you're reporting it and you're writing it. it it's a constant endeavor. And that's one reason why I am so, why this building is such a fabric of my being, because I, I, I pick my kids up from school and bring them here and hide them under the table downstairs. And, and <laughs> you know, my whole life is, has been tied up a lot of it in this very building. The last night, we, people may not realize this, but we don't publish the Herald Times here anymore. Uh -huh. It's published in Indianapolis. So the last night that we actually printed the Herald Times here in the building on our 
giant three-story press in the back with the real ink and everything. We run the press at midnight, and I drove into town so I could be here for the final press run. And I expected colleagues to like come like you know from the outer darkness to all congregate here at the building, and I was the only one. I had champagne in the car, so I, I, kinda, I just left it there, and I just I probably went home and drank the whole bottle. But it was I felt like I needed to be part of the end of of the printing because I have so many times I have actually caused the press to stop a couple of times. We used to print at noon. And it would be like, oh, my God, Laura, I, I would say, oh, I forgot something or this headline is wrong. Um, and they would scream, stop the presses. It's happened. How long did it take you to get away from being in love with your words? Like, you can't cut that. Those are my babies. We call it killing babies. Yeah. Oh, my God, you took the best thing I had and you took it out of the story. You have to, in this business, trust your editor. And then if you don't have a great editor, you have to, like... Not that I ever went back and put anything back in that an editor took out, but if it was really important, I might have. But you, you just sort of have to hand it off to your editor. And in most cases, I've had extremely insightful and strong editors that recognize the value of my story. Or they might say, they might read something back to me, and I'll say, oh my God, that is awful. Cut that now. And it may have been something that I thought was beautiful when I wrote it, but when you know, Andrea Murray read it aloud back to me. It's just like, she's laughing and I'm crying. I'm like, oh my God, thank you for saving me. I know that my words are not all golden. A sort of a surrender to reality in a way, huh? Oh, I think, isn't life about sort of what that is? I mean, and I, um, and when you're in journalism, and I, I've know this every day, sometimes you have this, this vision of the story you're going to write and all the components and then you start working on it, and you can't get three of the eight things you really wanted for the story. So the reality you accept there is you go with what you got. You do huh. the best you can. How have you kept your job for this long? People are being fired and let go and downsized left and right. What's it with you? I don't know. I thought I was gone last time, <laughs> about a month ago. For the last big cut, the yeah. The last big cut, yes. I, I knew when they called, when I was invited to the meeting where they were going to announce everything, that I had survived because the people who didn't, didn't get invited to that meeting. And I, I didn't worry about it ahead of time. I, I know that I am not done reporting and writing about events in this town. I hear enough people say, and I'm not trying to... to you know, say anything, then I'm great or better than anyone else. But because I have been here for so long, because I have a certain style and perspective to my writing sometimes, people know me and they recognize me, not me, but my work. I mean, let's face it. People like to read about crime. I write about crime. People like to read about cars. There I am. That used to be that you were measured by like how long you'd been there and that people liked you. Now, the measure for a successful reporter is whatever the analytics say. Yeah. So, Gannett is measuring every... So, say you're reading the paper online. They know how long you spent on every story. If you went back to it, they know how many hits every story gets. My analytics are very strong. Have you tried to get them strong, no. or does it just happen? It just happens. There's not many people left in the newsroom, but they kind of laugh at me because... I don't look at the analytics. I can't even get into the Parsley um, app that measures and shows you where your analytics are. Boris Ladvig will say, Laura, come here. And he'll show me how great my analytics are just because I'll be having a bad day. He'll say, look, look, how, look, you're great. See? And I'll say, okay, thanks, Boris, for the 
thanks for just refreshing me and making me know that I am still worthy and necessary. But I don't follow it myself. I have no idea what, how many hits. And a lot of people do follow it because they're worried. Because, and they have a right to be because jobs, like you said, are being slashed all over the place. Gannett cannot, Gannett, are you listening? Cannot cut our newsroom one more person. We are down to just bare bones from sports to news. We have no education reporter. We have no county government reporter. We have nothing. We have a lot. We have a lot. We have three really great reporters. And we have some sports guys. Now, two questions, two sides of the same coin. First, what was the most troubling story you ever covered? There was the murder of a one-year-old child in Spencer. Her name was Shaylin. And she was kidnapped and raped and murdered, and she was one-year-old. Abby Tonsing and I and Jeremy Hogan, a photographer here at the time, uh, we camped out for two days in Spencer while she was looked for and found. And that was difficult journalism because the people we had to deal with, everything from the family members to the law enforcement uh, people to everyone, it was just hard. And it's still hard. I, I stop at her grave occasionally over in Owen County just because I want to never forget her. But that was really hard reporting. I almost regret asking the darn question, for God's well, sake. No, and I, was, I had tears in my eyes and tried not to cry yesterday in the Paso sentencing when the judge is going through the litany of horrors of abuse that this 12-year-old boy endured. It's just like, buck up, Laura. Don't sit here and cry. Take notes, take notes, take notes. Tell the people what happened in this courtroom today. Let's try to switch this around and say, what's your proudest moment? What was the highlight? What did you cover that you said, I was there? It was a, a special section that we put out a few years ago about the opioid epidemic. Is, is probably the thing I am most proud of, of the journalism I've done. Um, I, all, I, I find great joy and also power of storytelling in the hardest places. So that's sort of where you have to go. There were people dying in this town every day from opioid overdoses. And I keep bringing up Abby Tonsing. I hope she's listening because she was a really good crime reporter here. And some of these really hard stories, I think, made it hard for Abby to continue doing journalism and doing crime journalism. And she doesn't do that anymore. So we decided on our own that we had to just dig into this opioid crisis and all of these deaths. Bob Salzberg gave us the okay, and this is a small staff, to give two reporters full reign to do a project right now that's going to take months is huge. So we got the okay. We started, um, we started, we did everything from looking, talking to the coroner. We got death certificates. We traced families, and we went to families of people who had had people die of opioid epidemics, and we tried to get them to talk to us. That's tough. Hard work. Yeah. Tough. Because why would they? If they came to me in the same situation, I would not talk to me. Leave me alone yeah. to endure my grief, please. She is a reporter's reporter. This is Laura Lane. She's the reporter and car columnist for the Herald Times. Laura, thank you for being on Big Talk. I've enjoyed talking with you.